You're listening to The Dice Men Cometh, broadcast live to air on Edge Radio 99.3 FM and proudly sponsored by LFG Australia. The Dice Men Cometh! Welcome everybody to The Dice Men Cometh, Tasmania, Australia, Southern Hemisphere and potentially parts of the world's most favourite and informative podcast. You're very lucky to be joining us on episode 317 and Leon told me I had to do an excellent introduction. So that's it. That's that's the excellent introduction. Leon, did I pass the test? Uh, you didn't say anything about board games, card games, role-playing games or games you can play on a table. So people, if this is their first episode, which I don't know why it would be, would have no idea what this podcast is about. Other than that, spot on. Absolutely. That's why there are two of us, Leon, to introduce this show because you're my yin to my yang and so on. But we have a third yin-yang tonight who is also on our little island at the bottom of a slightly larger island on the Southern Hemisphere. And that is a man by the name of Russell Alfie, who's decided for some reason to go and live in New Norfolk, which is almost modern living, but just not quite. (laughs) because he just wants to be with his collection. Russell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. No, it's wonderful. And it's also good to have another community radio member, because uh, before we get into to what a Russell Alfie is, you've just come from another little radio gig, haven't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I do a, a show or a couple of shows a week on our local community radio station, Tiger FM, TYGA. And yeah, it, just, it helps pass the time and it's a bit of, bit of fun and gives yeah. something to the community too. Absolutely. So winning all round, but we've got you on here because you you do have, you know, a collection that we'll get to and you do like board games, I think it's pretty fair to say. But before we get to that, what is a Russell Alfie? Um, gee, that's a really interesting question. Um, I've got uh, over 60 years of experience that I could be talking about, so you probably don't really need a full life story, <laughs> but written um, born in the western suburbs of Melbourne, educated Western suburbs and in the city, uh, a, an attempt at a university education, and then a number of years as a McDonald's manager, then a, a proper education this time, the university, work in the forestry industry, then in various software industries. Oh, that was actually interrupted by years travelling around Europe. Sounds horrible. And then had my own software business for a while, which... Then I turned into, well, I branched out into a card game store, a game store, definitely not my game, the Good Games franchise, (laughs) uh, which I had up until that four years ago. And now I'm just retired and trying to convince people that they need to be doing board gaming with me, not doing other family type stuff. Yeah, well, look, as I was a, uh, I was a grunt at McDonald's. I uh, was production manager for a lot of the time and I managed to flip a mean cheeseburger. But we digress because we're not here to talk about mm, McDonald's. We're here to talk about board games. Now, you touched on it a little bit, Russell, that you, um, you worked in a, a game store. But before we get to that, what did what did little Russell do? What did did little Russell play a lot of games? Did he did he get you know friends and family to sit around a table and um, crack out you know whatever it might be? Is that is that how your love of gaming started? I so I was thinking you might be asking something along those lines. Uh, as kids, we played cards quite badly. Um, my, one of my uncles taught me how to play chess, so that that became something we did a lot, and he and I would play lot of games but my earliest memory of a board game is actually a copy of monopoly in in pounds <laughs> that's how how old that was and that's well obviously how old i am and i, I found it even I, now i can remember just finding it fascinating this fact that you could move around a board and you could buy things and you had money and you would i mean we, have, we clearly had no idea what we were doing but there was just this interest in i guess a fantasy world where we were buying and selling stuff because we didn't have money, um, but being able to do that. And um, I, in hindsight, I wish I'd stuck with gaming a lot more, but at the time we just didn't know about games. I mean, the only things in, that would have been available were big, heavy war games. And as a, a young teenager, that would 
not have flown. I wouldn't have been able to find anyone else to play them with anyway. So sport was really our thing as kids. We were out running around all the time playing footy and cricket in the street. Uh, I mean, now you get run over by cars if you try that. <laughs> not in New Norfolk. Uh, well, back uh, back then was in Melbourne, the western suburbs. Um, but, yeah, the street we lived on, you know, we were able to play footy and cricket on. Yeah, we couldn't do that now. No, absolutely. Now, for, for a lot of our interviewees who we've, we've had on the show over the last couple of months, I've, I've asked the question about, you know, when, when did you take that switch from your mainstream, you know, monopolies and scrabbles and what have you and, and going into the, the, the hobby in a broader term? But did you have like this aha moment where as a, as a kid or a younger adult, you sort of realised this world of gaming exists and, and, you know, how you were going to dip your toe into it? I guess there were two, two sort of moments like that. Uh, from about 1980, I got a group of friends together and we started playing D&D and that, that became not, not quite an obsession, but it was a weekly or even multi-times-a-week thing with different groups playing some D&D. And then in the mid-90s, one night, I arrived to play D&D with a particular group I was with at the time. And two of them were sitting there playing this card, playing, doing something with some cards. And I looked and I was fascinated because these cards were all colored. They weren't you know, ace through king or ace through two, depending on the way you like to look at it. <laughs> there were all these multicolored things and they had writing on them. And I was like, what's all this about? And... It's like, oh, well, you have these lands in front of you and they provide you with magic mana that you can cast spells with and you do this. And I just sort of went, jaw drop, oh, my God, show me more. And we, we basically played that for an hour and we, we played it appallingly, as we discovered later. When we <laughs> properly. But I just sort of went, oh, my God, what is this? This, this is obviously the thing I have been waiting my life for. Yeah. Um, I know you've probably worked out that's Magic the Gathering. So that became a big obsession really quickly uh, for a number of friends and then introducing it to more friends and it became a three and four night a week thing that we were playing. And for, I'm going to say, about a decade, we basically played, We just that's all we played. Wow. And But it, things got a bit stale because the main group I was playing with I was really the only one who was buying new cards by the bucket load, whereas <laughs> the, other, the other guys were just sort of sticking with their old decks. So what was happening was basically I was getting better decks. And, th yeah, things got a bit stale. And then one day one of my Magic friends started bringing board games along he'd seen or heard about. I think the first one might have been Settlers. Um, then he brought Carcassonne along. We played some of these, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, these these are nice for a change, no no biggie. And then weirdly enough, one day he brought along Talisman, uh -huh. and we, we played that, and I was going along quite nicely, and then got to the Crown of Command and you know, sort of roll a D6. Oh, you rolled a one, bad luck, you're dead, out of the game. And I'm thinking, <laughs> sucks. Yep. But yeah. at the end of all of that, my brain just went, that's right, I love playing board games, and so sort of started looking at more because obviously things like Settlers and Carcassonne weren't known to me earlier yeah. and just sort of started seeing more of these games about and then one day uh, much to my uh, eternal dismay one of the groups said oh have you seen this website it's called Board Game Geek mm. um, and that would have been I think about the start of 2005 and I just, you know, an, another jaw-dropping moment. And I basically started buying games furiously. I mean, fortunately at the time, I had a wholesale account with a no longer existing company, but that was able to get me a decent amount of games. And then not too long after, I got my own shop. So that was another way of getting... But yeah, basically, <laughs> the board game thing sort of started really firing up about 2005 and yeah, I've been trying to own one of every copy of everything on board game geek since. Well, you're making a decent effort on it. And it was the 24th of January, 2005 that you registered with BGG, just, just so that, you know, I, I thought you'd have it tattooed somewhere, but you know, just for a little bit of uh, who's playing at home. Now, this is a, a hobby 
for for a lot of people. But for you, you did turn it into a a, a business and into um, you know a career, I guess is is what we would call it. So how did you how did you find working in the space that you know for a lot of us, there's always that risk of of taking something you really love and removing the fun from it potentially and trying to make a living out of it. Yeah, that that's certainly an interesting aspect. And I think some people might have um, wondered whether that might uh, cure me or anything. But I guess it was a different thing. One is that you get to talk about the thing you love um, with a captive audience who are actually interested uh, rather than, you know, friends and family who, you know, just say, hey, let's play this board game. That, you know, it only takes eight hours and you know, all we need 12 of us to play it and you all, you know, <laughs> um, I'm thinking, you know, uh, Big Bang Theory and, you know, Campaign for North Africa and, I mean, okay, that, that, that oh, was yes. a brilliant in-joke for us gamers, but, um, yeah, that, that's the sort of thing I could imagine people thinking. So the having the shop wasn't bad because, yeah, one, I was getting to do something with the thing I love. I suppose, yeah, it fits in with what seems to have been my life with work is that I love playing with computers and people wanted to pay me money to do it. And I was thinking, it's great. Yep. And then the board games, you know, I love having board games and talking about them and fiddling with them and stuff. And someone wants to pay me money. Well, in fact, it was my own business, but you know, the, I could still <laughs> be doing this and it, you know, attempting to earn money. So it, it didn't really poison. I mean, it made me see you know, the worst side, I guess, of some gamers, but we weren't, wasn't too bad in the shop. But certainly some games, I realised, yeah, this, this is not for me and that's fine. Um, other yep. people can like it and love it, and yeah, I know that it's not something for me, which is fine. But that's a good thing to know too, rather than think I I should love every game, and I know there are some I don't. Yeah, no, it's good to have that self awareness. Now let's let's take a little trip down this collection of yours because this is sort of the main reason of why we've we've got you on. Most collections, I guess, start with a game, and then they they finish it at some point. And you know, if you like Leon, you you buy and sell and you play once and you move it along. And if you like me, you rely on everyone else to buy the games and you have your own little collection sitting there. What's your collection story? Like what's, where did it start? And, and we'll get to obviously where it is at the moment. I, when I, when I started, obviously uh, 24th of January, 2005, I think you know, I had a couple of games and you know, we'd seen things like at a magic tournament, someone had brought a copy of guillotine along and, People were playing that, and that looked like fun. And Great Del Mooty was another one in the same boat. Yeah, that saw people playing. Said, "Oh yeah, look, I'd love to have a copy of that." And my friends and I would enjoy that. And jumping on BGG, I think when I first started, or well, did, did the, hey, there's the geek list of all the games that you own because you own a deck of cards. So I sort of yeah, clicked that I owned all these particular games, so that I'd have something resembling a collection. But pretty early on, I think I had about fifty games. And I'm not exactly sure where and how most of those. Like I know uh, my first war game was Luftwaffe, which I bought in 1978 when I started uni the first time, uh, because the War Games Club that was one of the things they, they actually played proper war games back then. So I sort of went in and bought bought the first one I could find, which was in a, a game. It was actually in a sports store. Yeah. But then, yeah, when discovering Board Game Geek and then looking at all these games and they they looked amazing. I think that's the one thing is I look at them and say, oh, that's, you know, it's not just bland. Like, it's not a chess board. It's not a uh, Monopoly board. This has colour. It has cards and um, yeah, lot, lot, bells and whistles. I, I liked all of those. So, yes, yeah, started buying a, a few. But, yeah, as I mentioned before i had a whole account with a wholesaler because i was buying and selling cards at the time before i had the shop so i had a lot of card games because i was big into collect collectible card games was sort of saw magic and all these other yep. ones and thought oh these might be even better which that wouldn't be <laughs> the case or not very much and then i was able to start buying games through these uh, companies so i started doing that and then discovering secondhand markets and unfortunately eBay. So that, that became yeah. quite an obsession for, and I was 
working from home in the main at the time. So there was plenty of time to sort of sit and browse. So that's, yeah, that's what, what happened. So over a short period of time, I bulked up the collection quite considerably, plenty of chaff and it has to be said, but in a way that's helpful to find stuff is like, okay, that's not a great game, but this particular thing is. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's get to where you're at now. And um, it's pretty good to, that, that we're all sitting down because according to BGG, you are currently sitting on, let's have a look, 3,874 games. Does that sound about right? Well, it'll, it'll be wrong because I got a couple yesterday that I haven't added in. But, well, I, the, the thing with the, the, the list of games, it also includes expansions. And I'm a big, I'm yes. a big fan of living card games. So, for instance, yesterday, I think I got four different packs for living card games. So that, that boosts the numbers significantly. And re- realistically, if you say exclude expansions, I think I'm at about, I'm going to guess, 1,600. It's not bad, I guess. You know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you look at a, a good collection and a good collection might be... 50 or 100 games or 150 or whatever the size of the collection that makes the person happy yep. is is ultimately the only sort of determining factor as far as a collection goes but for you that's that's a pretty sizable number leon are you are you impressed with that or have you got a target that you want to achieve now well i am no i don't have a target i want to achieve but just to give people some kind of mental in their head how that actually works uh so i have uh, the uh, six shelf calax in my rumpus room i have two of them and they are nearly full and i have just over i think 200 games so two calax so a calax basically shelves a hundred games and russell was saying he has physical boxes wise 1600 that is not a small amount (laughs) well the, the thing is with the calax you can actually double stack them so one in front of the other. <laughs> I've had, well, because of the space I had to do it, I, I suppose, well, um, it's, it's a horrific and a horrific story. Uh, when we moved here, we had two shipping containers of stuff and close to one of them was my games. It was- <laughs> wow. So how much physical space do they take up in your house? Are we talking a room, several rooms? <laughs> a room plus a little bit of space in the under house space or in the under house area, which is just beside my room. So it could almost say yeah. it's the one room. Um, I don't have, well, there's like half a dozen games in the lounge room that the wife and I play from time to time or we yeah, family or yeah, friendly games visitors can play, but most of them are in my room here. And then, yeah, well, I've got three, four by four um, calaxes Two, uh, one, four by two, and three or four bookshelfy type things. That's just in this room. Oh, and plus that cupboard is like a bookshelf too. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and and the space under the house, which we've got various stuff. Yeah, I yes, I know I have too many. Yeah. Now. Well, <laughs> not if it makes you happy. And look, I I just did a, a very quick sort of series of calculations. If you're saying a game is fifty bucks and you got sixteen hundred of them, that's that's eighty grand. If you're doing fifty bucks times the three thousand odd collection, that's approaching two hundred thousand. So, um, yeah, that's a nice little nest egg you got yeah, there. Well, that's the thing is, um, I'm not certainly looking at it that way because I could imagine, um, yeah, if I kick kick the bucket any time soon, no one's going to want to buy them all, and uh, the missus is. Wanna... Leon lives well, pretty whoa, close whoa, to whoa, you, whoa, so don't worry. Yeah. I'm I'm not that far away, and as I said to you earlier, one of my best friends. Is possibly one of your delivery men out in New Norfolk, so we could make it happen. Not that we're planning it. Not that we're planning it. We hope, <laughs> hope you're around for many more years. You seem lovely, but um, yeah. <laughs> or is there? Do you think there is a game in your collection over the years that is probably just from a financial value that is like a big gem of a board game that is worth quite a bit? How like until recently when they decided to reprint it and break everyone's heart. Like a full collection edition of Hero Quest was like a couple of hundred bucks. Do you have something? Do you think that'd be worth, God knows how much? Um, well, I guess like 
I suppose Kickstarter is another one of those areas that's uh, bit, bitten me hard. So things like uh, games like um, Sword and Sorcery, Conan, um, Deep Madness, yeah. and a few of those, which have just got uh, an awful lot of expansions. And I'm, yep. I'm obviously you've probably worked out a, a bit of a completionist, so I tend to have <laughs> decent, you know, decent copies of those. Like those particular games, I'll have more or less a complete thing of. So that's probably it. Oh, actually, um, I did an auction oh, about a year ago. I started looking at some games, thought, look, these, I don't need these or um, I realised that, that they don't need to be in my collection. And most of them yeah, weren't particularly valuable games. But there was one particular game I looked up and went, that's selling at $600 US. And I, uh-huh. I think it was still in a shrink. It was a, a big war game. Uh, yeah. And I thought, well, yes, I would love to play this one day, but it's one of those things you probably need to play it a do- dozen times before you get any good at it. Who am I going to convince to do that with? And someone's going to yeah. give me a lot of money for this. And I put that up for auction and someone just went, oh, 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 oh if I give you this much money now, will you take it? I'm a sure thing, you know, because I think it cost me a lot less. Well, I know it cost me a lot less according to my yeah. records, anything, I suppose, yeah, like if you look at, you know, um, things like Commands and Colours, yeah, I've got like complete collection of the Napoleonics yep. and the Ancients, but they'd, they'd be worth some money um, as a complete set. You know, I've got... Glory, Glory to Rome, perhaps? I've got, I think it's the IB edition. I I, I think mm-hmm. I got rid of the clamshell because I wanted, it was just a horrible thing to have things stored in. I don't have the black box edition, I'm pretty sure. Um Yep. I mean, yeah, I've got a few few games that I guess that appear to be worth some money, but then they so many games seem to be getting reprinted because they're worth some money. Um, Absolutely. It's, yeah, I, things I'm just looking um the Aaliyah big box and medium box and small box collections. I'm unfortunately not 100 percent complete, but yeah, I I'd sort of treat them as a game or at least a set. So that'd be worth a few dollars. And there's the odd game that apparently is worth a lot of money on its own. Well, let's um let's switch from you know selling games to what are you on the hunt for? What have you have you got a holy grail game that has just eluded you time and time again? Is there something that you just can't get your hands on? Um, well, it's actually the earlier big box set. I've got a, a copy of Ra and a copy of Hoity Toity, but they're not the Aaliyah matching box ones. They, they're not the right boxes, so they don't have that lovely numbered spine and they don't have that. And, yeah, it, it grates on me every time I see them that they just don't fit my collection. I, <laughs> oh, how do, you, how do you sleep at night, sir? That must not be for, horrible. Not, not for you. Games, I'd imagine. <laughs> uh, what do you think would be your one or two most played games out of your collection? Not your favourites. We'll get to that soon. Your most played out of your collection. You'd, well, I mean, yeah, I can. They're probably the ones in the lounge room, I'm oh, guessing. Oh, no, I couldn't imagine how many games of, like, chess I've played. Um, yeah. 500, because we wasted our high school years playing cards instead of studying. Games, well, yeah, because I, I track things on an app, of course. Um, the ones that I have most listed as played at the moment are 500 and Gang of Four, but that's been a lot of app-type play, so that might be a bit cheeky. But Physical face-to-face proper game. I think uh, Power Grid has had a lot of plays in various in- incarnations. Um, yep. Do you have all the different bibs and bobs for Power Grid, all the different maps and whatnot? Sure I do. And- okay. Well, you can tell me as a man who only has the base box himself, are any of the other maps worth getting? Because I've ummed and art about a few of them, but none of them look amazing. Um, they you're, I guess if you've played enough Power Grid that your games sort of feel a bit the same because everyone does the same strategy things, yep. then looking at a different map is a great idea because, uh, for instance, well, yeah, I like to think I'm a, a pretty reasonable player, but there's been some maps where I've just been trashed on because the requirements on different maps are, are such that you know I haven't adapted to them and uh, been slaughtered for like the Korea map, for instance, yeah, you've got um, two uh, fuel areas, so you can 
but you can only buy from one or the other in a particular turn. So you, yep. they, that can be um, quite, if you've got uh, two different power plants requiring different fuels, you may find you just can't power both of them because you can't get the fuel from one particular. So that's an interesting one. The Australia map's quite funny or and interesting because you can always connect from one spot to another for 20, even though they're not physically connected. The way Australia is treated okay. is that that's a connection. Um, Tasmania is not on the Australia map, is it? It sure is. It is. It is. Yeah. I didn't think that it was. Yeah, and the India the India map is probably one of the most interesting because if two, I think if too many people build cities in a turn combined, then everyone cops a brownout. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's the whole yeah. I'm going to build five cities, but the rest of you don't build any, so that I don't get punished. And of course, yep. everyone goes, well, I want to build two, and we all get punished. So that one's a quite good one. So look, each each map has its challenges, and mm. it's a good. It certainly shakes things up for a regular group because our group plays a fair bit of power, or has played a fair bit of power games. Fantastic. Look, I wanted to ask you about your unplayed games or about your un unopened games. Like, are you a you receive a delivery? probably every day and it's got one to 500 games in it. Do those games stay and shrink until they're ready to be played? Do they go into their own private, you know, vault and room ready to be, you know, brought out in a certain order or are they opened like a kid at Christmas time day after day? What's your, what's your take on it all? Um, well, the, the card games, well, obviously mostly LCGs, um, get opened more or less immediately and sleeved. Uh, yep. I am a sleever, which is really handy having owned a card store because that way I got to buy a lot of sleeves relatively cheap. <laughs> um, expansions to existing games tend to get open more or less immediately one either so that they can be sleeved and generally at least packed in with the main game because there tends to be so much air in boxes. Oh, yeah. New games, oh, these days I'm trying to be good. So I'm only trying to buy games like that I'm aware of and that I want to play not to just, just because it's new. So they tend to get it open, if nothing else, to read the rule book because that's my sort of middle of the night reading, lying in bed, um, is a pile of rule books just to get my head around what's going on. Um, so, no, there's not too many things that are in original shrink wrap, which you know, might affect resale value, but that's not what I'm buying them for. No. Uh, but I discovered you know, the other day I went to punch a, a, punch a game that I bought uh, four years ago, and it's actually faulted the backside of three of the sheets and went printed. So I was like, oh, <laughs> sorry to have to uh, be embarrassing and say, look, I actually hadn't touched a game that I bought off for four years, but it's got a problem. Yep. Um, but yeah, my excuse is I have a few too many games. Uh, a board game comes to my house. It is it is unshrinked and punched before it, it, it even hits any sort of table. And it drives me crazy to not do that. But so before we have a quick break and then go on about our featured game for the week, what are your favourite games after all these years in that massive collection? What are your, say, two or three absolute favourites? I'm glad you didn't say one like most uh, non-gamers would say. So what's your favourite game? And it's like, in fact, because for my 60th last year, I convinced my group of Melbourne gamer friends to come down for the weekend or the long weekend to game with me. Which was really Lovely. Awesome. And I was like, oh, I better put together a list of games I'd really like to play. And my top 10 uh, stopped at 22. Uh, and obviously we didn't get any, we need to playing all of those. Power Grid is a perennial favourite for the group, I guess, in one way, mainly because one of the particular members of the group can never seem to remember the rules of a game that we've we just taught him, and when it comes to his turn, we basically have to undo everything he does because he goes, oh, I'll do this. <laughs> no, that's against the rules. Yeah. Um, whereas with Power Grid, we don't have to teach him the rules again, which is awesome. Um, and the other thing is, like, with a, a group like ours, it used to be, oh, I don't know, what, what do you want to play tonight? Oh, I don't know. And then we'll, we'll do that for half an hour. Then someone says, oh, how about Power Grid? And everyone just says, oh, okay. So yep. Power Grid was the, the go-to for the group. And it, look, it's a fabulous game. I mean, yeah, as good as I think I am at it, you know, I have games where it's, I just play badly. I just make stupid mistakes. So, um, yeah, it brings me back to earth. 
uh, Magic the Gathering is close to the perfect game, um, in my opinion. I don't hardly ever play it anymore because we've played it to death for a long time. But every time I play it, I just sort of think to myself, geez, this is a great game. Oh, yeah, I, I now I, I remember why I love it so much because it is just such a phenomenal game. Yeah, you can't really slag it off even though it's a big kind of mainstream thing and it's one of those things where some people just play that and nothing else and have no desire to play anything else. It's kind, You still can't really say, oh, well, that's a bit silly because at the end of the day, it is. there's a reason why it's as popular as it is. It is, yep. as you say, it's a 10 on 10 spectacular game. Yep, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's really hard. I can look around the room here and I'm just looking at different games. And, oh, oh, yes, that's a game I really love and a game I really love. Uh, I, I'm looking at Middle Earth Quest. And, I mean, every time I, it's hard to get the team to get together to play that. But every time I play it, I really enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. that, that one's always been a favourite. The unfortunately limited number of times I've played it. I really like playing London, but I seem to do really well at that because that's the um, Martin Wallace version of London. Yeah, okay. First edition. Yep. So that, that might might be something to do with the fact that, um, yeah, I do do well at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're going to do, we're going to throw to a little bit of a break and Leon's going to put some something in so we can all have a breath. But, Russell, what we'll do is we'll give you a little bit of homework because we're going to talk about a game. It's a deduction-style game and we want you to have a, a little bit of think about... You know, what, what are your deduction games that you go to or the ones that, I'm not going to say that are in your collection, but the ones that you know that you like. So yep. there's a little bit of homework while we go to a break. So this is The Dice Men Cometh. It's episode 317. We are sponsored, as always, by LFG. So please, especially Russell, please go online <laughs> and buy some more games from them. And we will be back after this break. Hello, I'm Colby Dowk. Studio manager at Plat Hat Games, and you're listening to the Dice Men Cometh. Well, there you go. That was somebody with something. You're with the Dice Men Cometh. Now, Leon, it's time for you to do all this work that you have done over the last little bit of time and tell us about a game that we have played and that Russell hasn't. I know. He didn't even know about it. He calls himself a gamer with his 3,000 games. He's not even heard about it. Ridiculous, I say. No, he'll probably buy it now. All those boxes he has in the background, they're just cereal boxes. We can't tell. It's that blurry. (laughs) Anywho, so you've studied the footage. You've connected the dots. You've gathered what meagre evidence you could. You're close. Soon the whole world will know the truth behind the cryptid. A group of like-minded cryptozoologists, that's cryptozoologists, have come together to finally uncover the elusive creature, but the glory of discovery is too rich to share. Without giving away some of what you know, you will never succeed in locating the beast, but reveal too much and your name will be long forgotten. That sounds fun, doesn't it? It does sound fun. And it looks really colourful too. Yeah, they should make some sort of board game about it. Does that sound intriguing, Russell? Is that sort of thing that if you saw on a page, you'd go, woo? I guess it's having sort of had a little bit of a look at the game, um, it doesn't match up with what I thought I saw of the game. But, I mean, yeah, it's an intriguing description and sometimes <laughs> yeah, you need a good description to get the game on the on the table or get... Uh, non-gamers interested by saying, you know, hey, you're going to be doing this particular thing rather than saying, well, we're going to push people from here to here and whoever pushes them the best wins. So, yeah, yeah you, you want to engage people. So it does, does sound like an intriguing description. Well, surely you want to be a cryptozoologist, Russell. That's every boy's dream. Uh, crypto analyst, maybe, but um, no, no, zoology, I, I'm afraid of creepy crawlies. And <laughs> well, I think I... I don't know if it's creepy. Does it count as a creepy crawly still if it's like 10 foot tall? I think it probably still could. Uh, Either way. Big enough to run away from. There's a very good chance. So the game itself, so it comes with a modular board. So there's lots of different um, tiles that you have with it. It also comes with several different clue books that each person has. Uh, Five in this case. You can play up to five players. We've played this with four and four seems to be the sweet spot recommended by us and the BGG. You get a deck of setup cards with hundreds of possibilities and there's two different difficulties across it. So this is a game where we thought it's a deduction game and it's not very difficult when I explain the rules to everyone in a second. And we thought, is, he gonna be, is there going to be like no replayability to this? And the answer is 
if you like the mechanics of this game, there is a plethora of replayability. Is there not, Garth? There is absolutely heaps and heaps and heaps. Mm -hmm. And it is also quite amazing the difference between the two styles of play, the two options that you can choose, sort of the basic or advanced rules. They really do change it up quite a lot. Yeah, and all they are is the, the clues that they're going to give you. Some of the clues are going to be simpler in one version and in the other one, they're going to be a bit more difficult. Oh, and there's a couple of extra pieces that get put on the board, but they don't really change the rules. It's just the clues that they're going to be giving you to try and find this big, nasty, creepy crawly. It also comes with apparently with a digital companion app, which I didn't even know about until I started doing this research. So that's a good thing as well. So I'm guessing there's probably <laughs> even more replayability and allows for faster setup and things of that nature. So the way that the game works is very, very simple. On your turn, you're going to be doing one of two things, and it's just that simple. You're going to be questioning, and if you choose this option, what you're going to be doing is pointing to somebody else on the table, and you're going to say to them, do you think the monster could go here? And they're going to put down a cube or a circle to indicate they think that it could. And everyone keeps going around. And if everyone puts down a certain marker that says they think it could be there, you win the game because there's only one spot on the entire board that it is possible for everybody to get that one section done correctly where they can say it could definitely be there. And that immediately to me blows my mind that there is a way that there can be a really varied hex-based board with a whole bunch of different terrain types. What is it? Desert and water and mountains and forests and what have you. Yep. And there's multiple, multiple, multiple clue books that go out to each player. Each of them have various scenarios in them. And there's a whole deck of cards that are set up. Yet there's some calculation and some algorithm that means that there's only one spot on every board where this cryptid is going to be. That, I think, is amazing. Yeah. And then the other action you can do is searching, which is very similar to the questioning, but you just place one of your own um, pieces onto the board and then everyone else kind of does the same thing after that. So it's very, very simple. But yeah, it did blow me away when we first played this. I thought this can't possibly be right, but it does work. There is one issue though with this game, which could definitely be a thing that people need to look out for is that if at any point anybody gets anything wrong, the whole game is kind of out the window. Now, the game, once you know how to play it, takes 20 minutes, if that. It's not very long. I think we played it twice in a night after I explained the rules in maybe 45 minutes. So, And it's not the end of the world because you've got, as I said, hundreds of other options. So you haven't, maybe you've burnt one scenario. You're never going to play this game 200 times because no one gets to play games 200 times. I mean, Paul Russell doesn't even get to play them once. <laughs> so... Yeah, so that is an issue with this, that if somebody does screw up, so they might feel a bit silly or a bit you know, upset if they find out, oh, no, I should have said, yes, the monster could be there or couldn't be there, and that screws up everyone's kind of plans. It's a bit of an issue. Luckily, it didn't come up in our games, and my, you know, so who you knows? Well, I think that the good thing about it is because the game mechanically is so simple, yep. as long as you are actually paying attention to the board state, and by that I mean the terrain type, primarily, it's kind of hard to get wrong because what you've got to do as your, your player is you're working towards a set of rules that you know the cryptid has to obey. Yes. And you're trying to guess the, the set of rules that the cryptid has obeying for the other players because it is a cooperative, uh, sorry, competitive game. You are trying to be the player to find the cryptid, yeah. but you're using the information that the other players are giving you on their turns to find out, okay, well, Leon's always placing his his circle on the desert terrain or the forest terrain. So he might have a set of rules that says the cryptid has to be on the desert or the forest terrain. And, you know, Russell might be going, okay, well, he's got a, he's always placing it within a couple of squares of um, oh, a, a town or a, a, yeah. a pillar or something that is a, a bit of the, the game state as well. And we go, well, Russell's thing may say that it's always got to be within one, two or three of a, of a particular landmark. And you go around the table and you, you're really, really trying to play the players as much as the board state because you've got to figure out what everyone's rules are in order to actually crack this game and find the cryptid. 
Yeah, so in the simpler version, the rules are a lot simpler. They are just that where you get told it's not on a forest or it definitely is on a forest. Whereas in the more advanced version, it is more along the lines of it can't be within two spaces of this particular monument or it can't be within three spaces of this kind of thing. So the clues, we probably would suggest people try it with the, the simpler game first, especially if you're playing with people slightly younger just to wrap everyone's head around it, but then you can easily move on to the more advanced. But it also is one of those things that, which is kind of odd, that I would have no issue with this, with jumping back and forth between the simpler version and the advanced version, depending on, you know, what you want to do at the time. Whereas most games like this, you play the simple version, you play it once, maybe to learn the rules, you move to the advanced, and then you never look back. But I think because of the way the scenario cards work in this, and to give you that variety, I'd be happy to kind of go back and forth, especially if you had a particularly brain burner once in the advanced. You'd kind of go, we're going to play one more round. Let's just do the simpler one, 15 minutes, and have a laugh. Yeah, uh, I agree. And the fact of the matter is this game is completely suitable for young and old alike. It is so mechanically simple that you'll be able to pick it up in, in no time flat. But, Leon, what did you think about it? Uh, I really liked it because I love a, a deduction game, but at the end of the day, 90% of the games I have, they're social deductions. They're things like your wear words or your hail hydras where there's a betrayer or somebody has some information you want to find out, and it's more about playing the people, which, as you said, this game is kind of like that because you're looking at where people are placing things on a board, but it's not about trying to read them because you can't you have to pay attention to the board so it's different in that case that there's not that many deduction games out there these days most of them move on to the social deduction so i'm happy to have this in my collection and it was a game that was you know we don't like to talk money too much but it was relatively cheap and you can get hundreds of replayabilities out of this this is a game that could very much once you have a group that at the end of your gaming you know, weekly or fortnightly or monthly games, you could easily crack this out for one or two games to kind of finish a night with. It fits very much in there, but also it could fit in that with that. If people really like this, you could play this game for hours on end. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I really did enjoy it. I, I think there's a couple of risks to it though, because you can certainly suffer from, from AP. You can certainly sit down and you'd be a third of the way through the game. And instead of taking a turn, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to really try and crunch out what is Leon's rules, what are Russell's rules uh, before I even take my turn. And that's where this game can get bogged down. Thankfully, it didn't when we've played it a couple of times, but there's a there's certainly a risk in, associated with that. Yeah. And look, there's also a risk that the game can last 10 seconds because you can just luck it and go, is that the spot? And on my very first turn in the very first game, I got three of the four people to say, yep, the crypto could be there. And I thought, I've got this, I've got this. It was the last player to place their little um, cube on there to say, no, it can't be. But we were thinking, is this is this game done right now? Is that yeah. it? It's just blind luck. And, and there's certainly a risk that that can happen. But that's also, that's like the Rubik's Cube type thing that you got so close so quickly, you just think, oh, this is so easy. But then the fact is the game kept going after that and you probably thought, oh, I'm going to nail this on my next turn because I was so close. But then you just found, oh no, next time I got an even worse result. Absolutely. Because I didn't I win that wrong. one though, so that counts. Yeah, well, I'd forgotten that and I don't record that, so I don't really <laughs> care. Uh, so, Russell, you haven't had a chance to play this, although I did have get you to watch a cheeky little video on it. What do you think just from the look of it alone? Oh, look, it, it looks fabulous. I mean, I, I love a, a board of hexes. Um, colors like, okay, what, what's going on there? What What's this land? And then looking at the um, the rules and the descriptions of the, or information about the cards and thinking, oh, okay, yeah, look, that, that would interest me because of you know, mathematics and science and computer studies background. So the game has that um, logic about it that would suit me. But I could, I guess I could see the problem at which you mentioned that it requires people to be paying attention because if someone misanswers a question because they've, their brain is elsewhere. Yeah, you know, they, they could potentially ruin the game for everyone. And yeah, as uh, Garth mentioned, the AP. Uh, I've well, I have a fond memory of a game of Cluedo from about thirty years ago, where one one guy was writing down everybody's guesses because he was trying to work out from what we were asking, what we had, and what we were trying to achieve. And he was. I don't think he ended up winning because he just got himself so tangled up. But I could see <laughs> that being the way this could go. And the 
the read-up that I saw of it, the person suggested that maybe uh, if you play it too many times, you'll get very good at it and your uh, fellow players may not be as good at the game. So you'll be going, oh, okay, I can be, I can narrow in on this pretty quickly from what you're asking, whereas new players might be just going, well, I'll just try something over here. So, yeah, that that could be a little bit of concern for, and, and yeah, know, knowing my particular group, that there are some players who probably wouldn't enjoy it because it's not really their thing, the you know, Boolean logic type stuff, whereas for me, yeah, it's bread and butter. But um, yeah, it looks good, and it, it certainly would warrant a few plays, most certainly. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the things that any player go has to go into this is you've kind of got to get an understanding of what the rules for the cryptid can be, because if you if you go into it, you, you're going to get given your own little booklet and you'll get a number, one number, and you'd re- relate to one line in your book that says the rule for your your particular cryptid. And it might be that it's it's got to be in water or, or mountains. But you really need to have an idea about what the other rules can potentially be, because otherwise you're just flying blind. And, and that's something that probably needs to be explained a little bit in the rule book is just, just take a, a little bit of a notice of the other rules that your cryptid might have to obey, because chances are they're going to be duplicated in the other rule books in, in a similar fashion. And that that kind of levels the playing field. Because yeah, I, I think you're, you're right, Russell, that you know some players will certainly grok this a little bit quicker. Um, but you've got to have a bit of an understanding of what the what the the goalposts are. Otherwise, you're going to be spending turn after turn trying to figure out rules that people have probably otherwise figured out, and, and that's that's certainly a bit of a risk. But look, I I really enjoyed it, and for something that goes to fifteen to twenty minutes, it does you know work the brain out, and that's great. It's a puzzle. It's certainly a bit of fun, and yeah, I'm more than happy for Leon to have it in his collection. <laughs> Thank you very much for that voice of confidence, Garth. I very much do appreciate it. Now, Russell, your little homework that we gave you, we asked you to have a look at the shelves around you and try to distinct the, the different blurs of all the colours and have a look at some, what kind of deduction games do you have there or you've enjoyed over the years? Um, well, the first one that came to mind is uh, Fury of Dracula, which is yes. like a, a one versus many uh, deduction game where Dracula's running around the board and the hunters have to try to find where Dracula is and ideally kill him, but they've got to do that uh, under their terms, not under his. So it's great fun for, for the Dracula player trying to deduce what you think the players are going to do. Um, you know, they, they appear to be heading in one direction, so hopefully they'll continue doing that. And for the players with limited information, they say, well, he was here three turns ago. Is he there? which way did he go? He might have gone this way. And the Dracula players sitting there sweating because they, they've, they've worked out where he is, but they're arguing over, no, now he wouldn't have gone that way. Only an idiot would do that. That, <laughs> one, that one's great in that regard. And a similar one, uh, Letters from Whitechapel, which is a Jack the Ripper yeah. type story, which um, has an in- interesting feature that the players are moving along one particular grid and Jack's moving on a different grid, which is overlaid off but offset. So they actually, unlike most games where you have to land on the same space, it's more you've got to cross the path at appropriate time. So, and I do recall us having some great games of that where the players were convinced that, no, he couldn't have gone this particular way. That, there's no way he's standing right beside us now. He must have gone this way. And they've all run off in the other direction. And uh, they didn't see the beads of sweat on my head because yeah, I was standing right there. And <laughs> but Those are great. There are a number of... Um, Jack the Ripper type games set around London. Yeah. Oh, another uh, great ones are the, the Sherlock Holmes mysteries where you oh, have yes. limited sets of clues and you're told you know, the usual obscure Sherlock type facts. And it's a matter of going, well, which of these things do we investigate first? And having done that, where do we go next? And you've got to take it in turn. Then you get a newspaper to read and there's a whole heap of info on that which of these things are actually vaguely relevant. Um, great fun for uh, someone who's into logic, I guess, like me, but never do well at them. Oh, that's exactly <laughs> what I was about to say, Russell. There is probably no greater game to make you feel so thick, so, so, so thick when you try and compare yourself to Sherlock Holmes because what you do in 15 steps takes him three. Um, 
Now, Leon, I, I, yes. I think it's pretty fair to say that the social games and the deduction style games are uh, yes. your cup of tea. I mean, you you yes. love these kind of games. So what's your what's your go-tos in this sort of category? Well, sadly, I don't want to sound like a broken record because I've said many of them many times before. But uh, uh, Just One is basically in that category these days. Where Words is also in that category. It's two games that I absolutely love. Uh Deception Murder in Hong Kong, Spyfall, both excellent games. But I want to do something here. I want to have a little game of see if I can beat the collector. Because I've got here BGG. You may have heard of it, Russell. Um, and I typed in deduction. And I've got here the top 10 games by ranking of deduction games. And I want to see how many you own compared to how many I own. Now, there's only one game in deduction. And this could just be... I don't think this includes social deduction. This is just deduction. There's only one game in the top 100. Does anyone want to guess what it is? Oh, I've got the very same list up, Leon, so I'm oh, not going okay. to <laughs> Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective? No, I'm afraid not. It's in the top, uh, I think it's about 11 or 12. Oh. But, I don't know, this isn't sorted by ranking because one of the no. ones that's like eight. Either way, this is by there the... Are three inside the top 100. Ah, I'm looking at the wrong thing. Well, that's terribly embarrassing. Either way, uh, the one I was talking about here, which is number 85 on the overall ranking, is Codenames. And Codenames okay. is a good little game. Do you own Codenames, Russell? Um, about four different versions. Ah, fine. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, Leon, well. I've also, I hate to tell you, you've, you've stuffed up again, mate, that you're missing the number one deduction game. Well, I've got deduction... Number rating and number one is code names. Well, I hate to tell you, but on my BGG, it's Battlestar Galactica. Well, that's in here. That's on my top ten, but it's not the one that says it's number one. Screw right. your list. You're Leo less is stupid, Gav. <laughs> so, all right. So me and Russell both have code names. We we'll move on to the next one. I've got that too. Uh, well, no, you don't, because your list is wrong. We've established this. <laughs> uh, a game that kickstarted an entire genre of board games, almost. Uh, Love Letter. Yes, I've got uh, at least one version of it. Oh, just the one? Sorry, at, that's, at that's... least one. Probably, I think. Cool. Okay, so you've got code names. You've got Love Letter. Citadels. Yes, had that forever. Lovely. Dead of Winter. No. Hey. Wow. Score one for the good guys. Um, Hanabi? Yes. Yep. The Resistance? Yes. Coup? That coup? Um, coup, yep. May, I, I'm going <laughs> to think... It's there not, somewhere? I'm, I'm going to say no. I've certainly <laughs> played it, but I don't think I have it. Uh, Bottle Store Galactica? Uh, complete. <laughs> Nice. Okay. Well, I'll give you that one because that's I worth do some not... money too, Russell. Oh, good. Yes. I, I do. I do but not I like it. It's just a problem getting a large enough group together to play it. But yeah. Well, oh, if you yeah. ever need someone, just let me know. I was going to say you want to talk to the dice man cometh because we're uh, we're old hats. Well, I say we're old hats. Garth and our group are old hats about a star collector. I have played it once and did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can tell you that young Peter is always a Cylon, which is only a, a reference that my gaming group would understand, but one of the guys has never not been a Cylon. Wow. Um, <laughs> okay. We, we joke about it and we go, ha ha, we should, you know, we should space him instantly, but we ha ha ha, because he's always a Cylon, ha ha. And he was, and <laughs> it was over, but we, we just didn't, I, didn't go with it, but yeah. Um, there's the Resistance Avalon, but we won't worry about that because you've already got the Resistance. So the last two is Shadows Over Camelot. Yes, and expansion. Okay, well done. And then the final one is Mysterium slash, I would say, Obscurio, because I got rid of my Mysterium because Obscurio replaces it. Okay, well, we, uh, Mysterium is actually one of the ones upstairs because the wife yep. likes playing that and got that with the, all the expansions. Do you have Obscurio? I didn't know of it. Yes. So you, you Get on it. It's the exact same designer and it's basically a newer version of Mysterium kind of that is much easier to explain and much easier to get to the table and quicker. Okay. Well, yeah, because Mysterium is great, but it is a little bit cumbersome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, there you go. Did you have any others there, Garth, in your crazy old list? 
Captain Sonar was one that sort of sprang to mind as a bit of a deduction game, trying to find out where the enemy submarine is. And just because how many awesome eight-player social deduction games can you have like Captain Sonar, that is definitely something I love. Yeah. Well, PSG plays eight and um, Shadows play, can play eight. Oh, Battlestar Galactic with eight people. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> oh, it, it, it would be just disorganised mayhem and so much fun at the same time. Yeah, just put aside, put aside a day. That's fine. Yeah. I've got a day. Yeah. So there is a list for people to go out and buy. And if they do that, they will be within, uh, you know, 1% of Russell's collection. But they'll be within, like, you know, 10% of my collection. So, you know, that's not too bad. <laughs> well, Russell, it's been a really um, wonderful time, mate. Thanks so much for, uh, well, I was going to say visiting us, but you haven't left your house. That's fine. Um what are you playing next before we let you go? Well, one of the gamers I play with asked me to get them a copy of Takedo, so which is nice. something I don't own because uh, it hates me. Uh, <laughs> I, I have I've never not come. It's one of those ones I've never not come last at. So just like it's not getting a place in my collection, but someone else wanted to buy it, so I suspect we're going to be playing that. Although her boyfriend wants to play Joan of Arc, which is something I kickstarted, but I think. That Ooh. might not work so well with three. So that's a bit different to Takeda. Yeah, well, he he he's a Warhammer player and she's not. Um, but yeah, so but I'm going to hopefully go more with Takeda because maybe with a, a, a noob or two, I might actually not come last. Well, I'm probably about the same. I almost always come last, but it's one of those games I really don't care. I don't care that I come last in Takeda. I I've never really gone out to win because it's just so lovely the journey. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do own Takedo and his expansion. You know, if we're if we're you know comparing that kind of thing, which <laughs> well, which we cle- we clearly are when I win one. <laughs> well, you, you probably win this one. I've never owned Ticket to Ride in any form. Uh, have you at least have you at least played it? Oh yeah, the, yeah, I've played it, and it's like it's pretty. <laughs> it's <There you> pretty, <laughs> and it has trains, and I I do love it. Do love me a train game. Well, you yes, won up on me, Russell, because I've never played Ticket to Ride. No, Garth knows nothing. No, Garth knows, that's his secret shame uh, of board game, which is not so secret because we always go on about it. I think, Absolutely. what's my, Race for the Galaxy, I haven't played. That's my board gaming shame. I think Ticket gonna, to Ride maybe trumps uh, Race for the Galaxy in yeah. terms of uh, yes, what game should have played. But anyway, we digress. Do you think you have one off the top of your head, Russell? As what, One of the... One of the big ones from the last, you know, 10, 20 years that you've just never got to the table? There's actually a, a number of them. Um, <laughs> like what, what's number one on BGG at the moment? I think it's Pandemic, though, isn't it? Or Gloomhaven. Uh, it's still Gloomhaven, I think. Oh, okay. Well, I've got there. We've been able to play that a little bit. Um, it, certainly some of the, the well-known ones. I guess the main thing is with my, my groups is, yeah, I've got most of the games, so if I don't have it, it doesn't get played. Um, <laughs> And there's, yeah, uh, no, I mean, I can't, yeah, if, if I wanted it that badly, I'd get it, I guess is the thing. So I can't yeah. really think of a particular game. Um, no, that is fine. You've got plenty there to play. I'm sure you'll be fine. <laughs> now, the big question though, Russell, and this is something that separates the gamers from the gamers, are we horizontal or vertical? When you've got a stack in your box. Uh Oh my god! It's a hodgepodge. There's everything there. Oh well, the inside the the Calyx is there, vertical in the main. But I, I, I sometimes well the, the floor, some of the floor stacks are horizontal. It partly depends on the boxes. But yeah, I'm in the process of trying to squeeze the air out of as many boxes as I can. So uh, I've just got me a new 3D printer, and I'm going to print up all sorts of boxes and things. And yeah, so inserts oh. get thrown away. That might be take you five or six years or so. That'd be lovely. Yeah. Well, yeah. leave everything, put it in tuck boxes, make boxes for the chits and tokens and squeeze it all up to space. That'd be the Lo- ideal. Lovely Wonderful. work. Right. Well, Garthy boy, that is us again for yet another fortnight here on the Dice Man Cometh. Proudly brought to you by our good friends at LFG. And what a fun time we've had, is it not, Garth? It's been wonderful. So, Russell, thank you very much. 
Thank you for sharing a little bit of your extensive collection with us and your gaming history. It's been very, very informative. And it's also lovely to speak to another, you know, Tasmanian local because we don't get to speak to, to many too often at this time. Hope you had fun. Please make sure for any listeners who are interested and in, in the area to check out Tiger FM and listen to Russell and his amazing musical choices. When are you on, uh, on Tiger, Russell? Uh, uh, 6 to 8 p.m. on a Monday night. We're going to play sort of a, a pretty heavy rock sort of show. Um, there's a number of gamers who usually jump in on Facebook and or Messenger and ask me for requests. And then again, 12 till 2 on a Thursday, which tends to be a little bit more easily listening for the, the oldies who are generally listening during the day. There you go. Wonderful. Well, look, thank you very much for spending your evening with us. It has been an episode 317. Leon, Garth and Russell joining you live from our respective homes. For the Dicemen Cometh, please feel free to join us on all the social medias. Just go to whatever your social media is and do Dicemen Cometh and that'll be us. Um, and apart from that, Leon, we're done, aren't we? We're done I'm for another episode. I'm pretty sure we are, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to go on out, out on a limb here and be pretty confident and say this was the best episode 317 we've ever done. Wow. I, I reckon it's up there with the top two or three, for sure. That is definitely true. Right. Well, everyone out there, play games, stay safe, and if you're in New Norfolk, Tasmania, find a man called Russell so you don't have to buy games ever. All right. Lovely work. Thank you. And good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Catch up.